Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is all about interest rate differential. You notice that the moves over the past month in the FX space um, is predominantly driven by interest rate differentials. Dollar-yen, for example, dollar-renminbi, for example, is all simply because the interest rate differential are moving strongly for the dollar. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that was analyst Heng Ku Hao talking on CNBC, but it could have been any analyst anywhere right now because he is saying what well, everyone knows, that the US dollar is doing well now because bond yields are so high in the US compared to many other parts of the world, and that can create big problems for the rest of the world. A strong dollar is not good news, so what damage can it do? And is it time to ask again whether free-floating exchange rates are a good thing or not? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, one of the problems facing smaller countries in particular right now, in fact, possibly any country that isn't America, is that currency exchange rates are often driven by the demand for that country's bonds. So U.S. Treasuries, which are the bonds issued by the U.S. government, are a bargain right now. And because of rising interest rates, they offer a great yield. And the time to buy them is just before the interest rates peak and then yields start to come down because that is when you're going to pay the least. So lots of money is flowing into the U.S. to buy up bonds and maybe shares too if it looks like the economy is recovering, which people seem to be assuming. So the US dollar goes up for all those reasons. Every other currency relative to the dollar goes down. So for lots of countries, particularly small countries, that pushes up the price of imports. And that means prices go up and, hey, presto, more inflation for those countries, all thanks to America. That's the state we're in now. It's a bit of a problem, isn't it, Steve? It is a bit of a problem, and uh, it, it's quite ironic in some ways because one of the side effects of the Bretton Wood Agreement with the Americans making the stupid decision to overrule Keynes and make uh, uh, the American dollar the, uh, the currency for international trade rather than the made-up currency that, uh, that uh, Keynes wanted to use the bank call is that, uh, as Giannis Varoufakis points out, that necessitated America running a balance of payments deficit because otherwise you couldn't get American dollars in the first place, even the trading system. And secondly, um, you had a demand for American dollars over and above the demand for American goods, which therefore gave a boost to it. So, so it's, it's always going to have an overvalued exchange rate. And, uh, and and now we're getting extra curly. Yeah, yeah we're getting extra curly, but it's also you know, I mean, that, the factor that so much trade happens in US dollars. So multiply the issue by 10, because that's the, the sort of level of transactions outside America involving the, the US dollar. But even so, even without that, you know, this would be a problem just because everyone, because America is such a big country. And it's, a, I mean, I, I guess it's made bigger by the fact that we uh, re- rely on the American dollar so much. But it's a big population. I, th- I think it's actually made smaller. Right. Okay. 
it, it backfires on them. And then the same thing happened to England uh, when it made the same mistake of making its currency the international currency back in the 19th uh, century and early 20th century. Uh, because, as I said, if you have a demand for your currency which exceeds the demand just for buying of goods and services, and as you say, a huge amount of this demand, anyway, is for is for you know financial instruments. It's not for phys- physical goods, but just on the on the physical goods alone, uh, you because you need American dollars not just to buy American goods, but to buy German goods and French goods and Chinese goods and so on. Um, then you have an overvalued exchange rate. And what that means is your American manufacturers are competing at a price disadvantage to the rest of the world. Yeah. So this benefits your financial sector. You know, your Morgan Stanleys and your Vampire Squids and everybody else uh, makes a literal killing because they've got an overvalued currency with which they can buy assets in other currencies, countries. Uh, and then that leads to the you know, American financial sector taking over the planet. But the American manufacturing sector gets decimated by this. But this whole bond issue, you uh, and the fact that it looks like you know everyone is now talking soft landing for America I mean Europe looks as though it's a bit of a basket case no one's quite sure what's happening with China Australia seems to be doing okay but you know there's a bit of a worry that maybe uh, you know it's it, it, it's going to fare worse in the not too distant future America looks like a safer bet to lots of uh, lots of people so uh, you know if you are investing Outside America, perhaps it's a bit of a risk. I mean, I'm talking about investing in financial instruments. That's why people think, you know, if I'm going to buy shares, uh, I'll probably buy U.S. shares because that seems a, a safer bet right now. So, again, you know, all that money is going into into America um, and irrespective of, you know, it being the reserve currency, it's just the strength of the economy generally, isn't it, that's giving it this leg up that no one can compete with. Well, there's actually there's actually an, an extra issue which is worth discussing. Whether it's major enough, or not, I don't know yet, but I, I think it may have a long-term impact. But the general point you're you're making there is the safe haven effect, and this happened back even during the financial crisis from memory back in 2007 uh, when that began. Uh, even though you had a crash in the value of American housing, I think from memory there was a boom in American bonds and American shares relative to the rest of the world because of the safe haven effect. So if, 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 you, if there are troubled times, you buy the American American financial assets. Um, so that's that's the the those are all the general things. The newbie right now, and whether it's you know significant or not, I really can't say, but it's worth uh, pointing out is Biden's uh, you know boost America the what they were called the Inflation Reduction Act. I think it was called the IRA. Yeah. yeah. Interesting yeah. acronym. Um, uh, yeah, and. And which is a slug, sort of- a slug of government money, which is being pushed into the economy, which is it's interesting because people are actually saying that this is, you know, part of the smoothing over for the US economy. I mean, even, you know, mm. quite hard line uh, monetarists are saying, well, actually, this is this is helping America. Why because they American that- firms are investing in America. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. a, it's a huge part of the denigration of the American manufacturing sector was the relocation of production to uh, initially other third world countries, but ultimately China. Uh, uh, in search of cheap wages, and that's uh, all the comparative advantage nonsense is just nonsense. Uh, it's it's not what's going on at all. There's no reallocation of capital going on. What the American corporations are doing is taking advantage of cheap wages. But other countries will find it hard to do that, of course, because uh, if they do that, they're going to have to borrow a great deal and uh, buy stuff in to build infrastructure or whatever. And they've got a yeah. weaker currency right now yeah. because of the dollar strength. 
yeah. we get back to that argument. So you've got um, there's a whole lot of factors right now mean that, as you say, the fact that we have floating exchange rates and that the American currency is the currency of international trade is a problem for a fair bit of the world, including to some extent America. And yet, you know, Friedman said floating exchange rates would sort out the terms of yeah. trade. If one currency went too high, their goods would be expensive. They'd sell less of them. That would give someone else a chance. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that? I mean, if my, if my currency goes down, I'm instantly going to set up a new industry, Steve, and uh, start making the most of the opportunity Then and close it all down again when people buy too much and the currency goes up in value. I mean, it inst- it's one of those instantaneous things, isn't it? It's so simple to shift out of one industry into another. You know, turn, <laughs> turn your sheep dips into blast furnaces. Uh, uh, what's what's the old biblical thing? Thou shalt send their chance their their swords into plowshares. Simple. Yeah. You know. Yeah. What you've got to do is stick them in the ground and attach them to a horse and drag it along, and you can rather than killing people, you can you can plant crops. It's garbage, and this is the right. one of the reasons I find neoclassical theory so bloody annoying. But that uh, is why we have that is that that whole reasoning by Friedman is the whole reason yeah. that we've all accepted the idea of floating exchange rates, though, isn't it? That it will yeah, well, sort out, it'll more, balance itself out. There's more to it than that because the like, modern monetary theory is also in favour of floating exchange rates, and we'll have a talk about that at some point. But yeah, the basic idea was that the reason for balance of trade imbalances, so you have some countries having permanent surpluses, relatively speaking, others having permanent deficits, was because we had fixed exchange rates. Here's this terrible government system intervening in the market. Let's open it up. Let the market work it out. What will then happen is price changes will eliminate quantity um, uh, um, excesses and, and, and shortages. So rather than having uh, a, a country like Germany or Japan or Korea running a, a balance of trade surplus, their currency would appreciate and and, and we then have balance of payments, surpluses, and deficits will disappear overnight. And of course, this night has now lasted for what sixty yeah. years. Well, of course, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, the innate problem is that in, you know some countries have just got a natural advantage, particularly those with oil or cheap labour or lots of people. So China has a massive trade surplus. Of course, so does Russia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Norway, Australia, Qatar. Some of those have got something in common, haven't they? Um, uh, let's drop Australia out of that list. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I mean, it's, it's been export. Well, it's been exporting a it's great deal. Only of- recently, Australia only recently has gone from being a bit of one of the permanent trade deficits country to relatively, to, to, you know, to some degree, to close to a surplus. But the countries which ran permanent trade surpluses. Yeah, Saudi Arabia and the and the oil rich countries to some extent, yes. Um, definitely. But the real ones are when those surpluses one which were in manufacturing and investing. Mm-hmm. And I think this this is the, the reason that the flaw in Milton Friedman's apparently uh, sensible logic is that if you have a, com- a company, let's work at the company level now, uh, if you have a company which uh, is exporting dramatically, uh, let's say it's making automobiles. Let's 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 call, let's make up a car. Let's call it Toyota. Well, I like that name. Did, did you just come like, out with that that's, off that's, the top of your head. Name? You reckon it would yeah, work? Yeah, I think so. You reckon it would yeah. work? Okay, call it Toyota. Okay, so Toyota decides to make absolutely cheap cars, uh, which taps part of the market the rest of the, the Americans aren't bothered with, and therefore starts selling substantial exports of cars to America. Which Americans and Australians, I'll add, because I remember this as a school kid, laugh at them because they're so tiny and tinny and, and cheap, but they're cheap and they sell dramatically. And then you reinvest and all the money you make from the exports goes back into improving your manufacturing. And you happen to have stolen the ideas of an American. Uh, this is, I can't think of his first name, but it was Deming. 
um, who came up with an idea about what he called continuous improvement in manufacturing, just-in-time manufacturing, and and quality control. So you in a, in a very clever approach to quality control as well, which Americans knew they didn't need after the Second World War because they were the best, they were the biggies, and they were going to beat the rest of the world out of sheer size and American ingenuity. Well, the Japanese slaughtered them because they, they brought Deming in, and Deming then explained how to dramatically reduce the need to rework uh, in manufacturing. So uh, you would, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, You over time you'd improve your uh, efficiency. And with the export earnings they were making from selling these little cars, yeah. I call them Toyotas, didn't I? Yeah, you did, yeah. I think, yeah, Corolla, let's call them Corolla. Corollas, yeah, that's what on Corollas. Uh, so they're selling those Corollas, and the Corolla gets better and better over time, and ultimately the Corollas are downside better than a Dodge. And you suddenly have Japan taking over your uh, your your car. Industry. So that yes, yeah, so that idea of continuous improvement. So that that just goes against Friedman's idea that it can all instantaneously change because the because the, the product has got something to do with it. Yeah, investment, investment takes yeah, yeah. time, and if you're making an export surplus, you've got more money to invest. Whether that yeah. could be generated by your government or not domestically, which is the MMT case. You are generating it yourselves by export revenue, and therefore you expand and you and you, you plant over time. You improve its efficiency, you improve the design, and you get a permanent uh, lead on the rest of the world, which you then squander. Of course, that finally happened during the bubble economy days. But this—that's why the export surpluses did not disappear and were not wiped out by the um, by the mere change in exchange rates. Because you were doing, you had a greater rate of improvement, a greater rate of investment, and you, when you lost the lead to some extent by an appreciating currency, um, you made up for it by continuing to undercut your rivals, even against that appreciating currency, and bang, you locked in a, you know, five or ten percent of GDP trade surplus. Right, but that that is supplementary to my point that there are some countries that just are, are resource rich. And so can export a great deal, and no one can replace that. Floating exchange rates isn't going to suddenly give uh, countries that don't have oil as much oil as Saudi Arabia. And the fact that Australia is now one of those countries with a you know a, a big trade surplus just behind the Saudis, the UAE, and Norway. What, what's Australia. what's what's you just get some numbers here? You're going to ask me for the absolute. I don't have the, don't have the absolute numbers uh, with me. I'm afraid, but it's uh, but it, but they're they're up there now, and they have been for a while because we've been exporting so much iron ore to uh, to China and the like. But it's and you know it's, and coal obviously as well as being part of that. But I mean, the fact that Australia has a surplus, irrespective of what it is these days, I mean Australia is not a country that's learnt uh, about you know improving its manufacturing capability, is it? So it's got that because of its resources. Well, had to get rid of it instead. Yeah, so it's got that because of its resources. Yeah. So that's a leg up for for something that can't be uh, you know fixed by floating exchange rates. So that sort of puts paid to Friedman's argument as well. But there's an issue against that, and that's what's called the resource course. That was originally called the Dutch disease, which is quite funny because yeah. Holland is now one of the world's great manufacturing countries. Or otherwise, they talk about name changes. You call it Dutch, you call it Holland, or you call it Netherlands. <laughs> you have three Take options. Take your pick. All correct. <laughs> but, but what they, they, they initially, I've forgotten what resource they had. It was possibly oil. I'm not sure. And, yeah, I think uh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, and what you then had, because that meant you had an overvalued exchange rate from what was happening with your resources, it meant your manufacturing sector found it competing with excessive prices, and it couldn't. It, it, its, its price was too high to compete against yeah. other manufacturers. So the resource curse is seen as a reason as to why you didn't get industrial development in a lot of those countries. Now it doesn't right. have to. And then be. you hollow out. You hollow out the economy. Yeah. Is that? Uh, is, yeah, yeah, which is I mean, which it, Australia it, may well find. 
Yeah, on the other hand, it doesn't mean you have to have that happen because Norway is the classic example of a country that turned its export surplus from a raw material, oil, the oil, uh, North Sea oil, it turned that into a, a reinvestment in its both its infrastructure and its manufacturing. So most of the equipment made to mine that oil is made in Norway and they then export to other oil um oil producing countries which don't have their own manufacturing sectors. So Norway has industrialized it. So the resource curse is not a necessity, but it's an outcome of stupid policy. And on that front, Australia has a new monopoly. So the country with the uh, largest surplus, largely from manufacturing rather than being a resource rich country, or maybe Norway's part of that. But then you also get Germany, uh, Mm, you know, but it's been helped, of course, by the valuation of the euro. So again, you know, the floating exchange rate doesn't apply here because the euro is held down by other less productive European nations. So that's giving Germany that leg up in that it can. It's not doing so well now. But I mean, historically, it can produce stuff at a lower price than it normally would because the euro has actually sort of interfered with Friedman's argument, hasn't it? That that's only happened since two thousand or nineteen ninety nine when the euro came into originally virtual and then physical existence. So mm. before that, Germany is running a trade surplus, and the same basic idea. Uh, they were industrializing and developing and technology, even though it ended up being destroyed after the Second World, you know, the Second World War, which itself was seen as one of those negative, positive negatives, because when everything has been bombed to hell, uh, what you invest in when you finally can invest. Uh, is the latest technology, yeah. and you then get a lead again in technological terms over your rivals. So, and then, and then the euro just cemented that because it meant that rather than being valued in a currency which was affected by that, it's valued in a currency which included you know, Greece and other countries that didn't have an industrial sector, and therefore it got a price advantage out of the so-called floating exchange rate. Yeah. So which car was it? German car. They had the tagline uh, in their English advertising: "Vorsprung Dork Technik." Uh, which actually means progress through technology is the uh, the translation for it, which is pretty much what you're talking about, isn't it? Just continual improvement through through technology, through investment. Uh, a whole lot was, of it people- Mer- Mer- was it Mercedes or um, uh, Audi? It was actually. Your Audi, okay, your, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, and that and that's the thing. When you focus on an industrial development, then you can get an advantage out of the technology improvement that you get and out of non-price competition this is the other thing which neoclassicals have no effing idea about that most of the competition that works is not producing exactly the same thing your rivals at a lower price it's producing something different than your rivals at a similar maybe even higher price and tapping into a market that they therefore lose out on because your thing is better than theirs yeah yeah what i love about the uh, that vorsprung dork technique is that uh, you know they use that as advertising slogan in in england i think they did in australia as well no one bothered to learn what it meant. It just uh, they just uh, they felt confident because it was you know it was German. Uh, and uh, <laughs> when that state, aren't we? You think if it's, if it's made by the Germans, it must be you know it must work. Uh, and so they huh. built that credibility, which uh, you know you wouldn't necessarily think about cars from England or even America, for example. Look, I want to look at um, how the size of country uh, interferes as well. There's a, a definite advantage with being a big country when it comes to uh, exchange rates. Uh, we'll do that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen back in just a second. Where's that dust coming from? 
Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, some of the smallest countries, of course, fare the worst, particularly right now with this strength that we're seeing in the U.S. dollar. This is what got me on to talking about floating exchange rates because the U.S. dollar really is growing from strength to strength at the moment as it supposedly comes out of uh, you know this uh, wave of inflation that's uh, taken over the world. So last year, the CD, I think if I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, that's the currency of Ghana, uh, went from being six CDs to the U.S. dollar to over 14. So it basically lost... 139% of its value in a year, which meant it had to turn to the International Monetary Fund for its assistance. And we know what happens then. You know, things go from bad to worse. But they impose austerity on you as well. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Zimbabwe also did badly last year because they have high levels of foreign debt. And of course, that debt just gets worse. If their currency falls in value, it's going to cost you more to pay your US dollars to pay off that foreign debt. So it's a, it's a downward cycle, isn't it? And uh, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, emerging markets suffering right now because of that strength in the U.S. dollar and because they rely on the U.S. dollar uh, as well. But, you know, it makes their own currencies, you know, relatively worthless. Yeah. And, and, and this is, as you say, it's causing inflation in the rest of the world. Uh, that's which is actually rather ironic because the whole idea of the uh, of the. Um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act was to reduce inflation. It's doing it okay for America, but it's actually causing inflation elsewhere. So I'm not quite sure how you fix all of this. You know, the because uh, those countries have got a high dependence on exports, also have a tough time because their income is going to fluctuate enormously. So even you know, relatively stable countries. Let's take Australia as a case in point, driven by iron ore and other exports. But this year, we've had this soft recovery in China. So the Aussie dollar that was worth 72 cents back in February, it's now sort of heading back, you know, heading down to 70. So you've got a compound effect here, haven't you? The price of the goods that you're selling is uh, is is worth less and the value of the currency is less. So if you sold iron ore and iron ore goes down in price by 20 percent and your currency loses 20 percent, then, you know, double whammy on that. You know, your income's down, what, not 40 percent, but say 35 percent. Uh 
and it's really that big for developed economies, but it demonstrates, doesn't it, the, just the power of these fluctuations, even for you know relatively stable economies, the fluctuation in the exchange rate driven by these factors can be quite substantial. Yeah, and I, I think this is the issue which, you know, with, with floating exchange rate, all this is supposed to be eliminating the physical imbalances, but they're still there. So the idea that floating exchange rates are going to eliminate trade deficits and trade surpluses has proven empirically false. And we should therefore go back and say, well, what was the real problem with the old fixed exchange rates in the past? Uh, it, was, it was fixed to a physical currency, you know, supposedly fixed to gold. Um, uh, whereas instead what, what Keynes wanted was an actual system designed so that you reduce trade deficits and trade surpluses. His target, I think, was something of the order of having no country having a trade deficit or surplus of more than 2% of its GDP. Now, instead, we've had countries like Japan and Germany, China on occasions having 10% of GDP and sustained for very long periods of time. So this is the, his idea was the bank call, which we have talked about quite a bit on the podcast in the past. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean we won't talk about today. So we'll get, we'll get onto that in a moment because it does seem like the elegant solution. But of course, it, it's so elegant, it's never going to happen. But let's look at the pros and cons still of freely floating exchange rates. So one of the arguments is it does give governments some independence. If you've got a, if you've got a fixed exchange rate, then you know, your central bank is going to find it hard to act independently of the central, you know, if you're tied to another country like the US dollar, like some of these smaller countries, for example, then you haven't got the, you know, the ability for your own central bank really to act as independently as they'd like to. And that's a valid argument. Okay, like on, then that's one of the main strands behind MMT's thinking as well, that once you're off a fixed exchange rate and you, you therefore no longer have a control on the value of your currency, uh, which you can therefore damage by, you know, if you have a depreciating currency, uh, well, actually an appreciating uh, whichever way it goes, pardon me, a bit early in the morning for me at the moment, uh, I'm still getting over my COVID, but uh, it's, it is something which restricts what your government can do, where you get rid of that, you don't have the restriction anymore, and you can then have a, a government uh, you know, practicing monetary creation as it needs to, to maintain its domestic uh, domestic employment. Uh, so the floating exchange rate is seen as part yeah. of that. But I think equally it could have been part, you know, and back to the bank or again, I, I think it could have been something which would work with the bank or system as well. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, in the absence of bank or maybe for smaller countries, one of the advantages of being pegged to a larger currency is it's going to give you more stability. So in banana republics, of which there are obviously an increasing number, in fact, I possibly live in one myself, uh, then the, the currency value uh, can't be manipulated by politicians for their own gains if they are pegged to a to a larger currency and of course that is one of the problems isn't it for small countries uh, a small uh, despotic regimes uh, where you can play with the currency and make yourself very rich if you're in charge and you know, look at if we go back to why the, the floating like the fixed exchange rates under the original Bretton Woods agreement broke down uh, a large part of it was that America was running a permanent trade deficit. And this comes back to Giannis Varoufakis's point that actually to make the system work, America had to have a trade deficit to generate American dollars in circulation in the rest of the world. But you then got the enormous buildup of American dollars outside America itself in what was called the Euro dollar market. And the there's two elements behind this that, that, that are important about why the system broke down because the Americans again turn said, we are pegging our dollar to the gold. So one 
America, if you bought 35 American dollars to Fort Knox, uh, America, America was obligated to give you one ounce of gold in the exchange rate that applied at the time between the American dollar and gold. Now, the trade, one of the main trade surplus countries at the time was France. And it had a, a rather um, irascible, uh, 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 I think he was the president, you know, Charles de Gaulle, and he threatened to mm -hmm. uh, be because of this continual trade deficit in the Americans, uh, so their American dollars were, were, were being, literally being accumulated by the French. He threatened to turn up at, uh, at, at, at uh, um, Fort Knox and buy all the gold in America. And that's what then forced, first yeah. of all, the break into two um, price systems. First of all, the $35 official rate was maintained, but if you wanted to buy a gold as individual, you paid $42 an ounce. And then finally, the whole breakdown. So you broke the link of the of, of the American dollar to gold. Well, and there's no way in the world that would work now because, I mean, we're not increasing the amount of gold that's available in relation to the growth that we're seeing in the in the global well, this, economy. This, this, so you can't yeah, see I mean, this, this is one of the reasons people argued against the gold standard. The, the, the whole fact that it was fixed um, was was physically a problem because you know that meant you had a rising gold price over time. If the economy was growing faster than the physical stocks of gold, and if you look back to the 19th century, you can make some positives about the about the gold standard uh, in in that period for international trade uh, but you also had a the, the fact that you had a non-elastic uh, currency meant you couldn't have an expansion of uh, investment in different sectors uh, as easily as you can with the flexible currencies we have now where the with uh, and frankly they applied to a large to some extent in the 19th century as well uh, where banks create money and the government creates money and then that can expand the money supply to enable physical investments to take place at different times in a way that a a, a currency linked rigidly to a fixed or commodity and relatively fixed supply you don't get that flexibility and presumably exchange rates are influenced heavily by the by the size of each currency so if you've got a rapidly expanding us dollar there's a lot more us dollars coming into existence because there's more uh, loans being issued by banks for example and there's less less of that happening in europe uh, then that will influence the exchange rate as well Presumably, I mean, it's going to anyway because you're giving those loans presumably for expansion of the economy, uh, which would mean that you know the, if if there's more borrowing going on in the U.S., then obviously there's more hope of of uh, future profit than there is if you're not seeing that borrowing happening in Europe. But just the sheer volume of each currency presumably is going to have an impact on those exchange rates too. Well, that's, that's again one reason people argued in favour of, of, of fixed exchange rates or tying it to to stop that sort of manipulation going on. Um, but it still happened in, under both regimes that people have got a, a very rose-coloured view of what actually happens in financial markets uh, and, and, and the capacity of assistance to restrain that behaviour as well. So um, I, I, I think that's... Uh, you know, it, it, it comes well, Friedman down would to... argue, of course, Friedman would say in that situation, well, if you've got lots of loans and that's creating more US dollars... You're uh, going to have inflation. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to slow down your trade. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to balance itself out. Which it doesn't. And this is the point about it being... This is, we're, we're using static thinking for a dynamic problem. And if you then... The, the case with the, the countries like Japan in, in particular, that's probably the best example, 
uh, industrializing rapidly uh, and therefore in time, over time, accumulating an advantage which they continued with by reinvesting, continued to grow. And people these days, I'm sure they've forgotten it, uh, about it, but there was a, a quite famous movie. I think it was called The Rising Sun. Um, I think I think I think I had to do Wesley Wesley Snipes or Will it must be Wesley Snipes. It's too too far back in time for uh, for Will Smith, and I think Sean Connery in it. And the idea was the Japanese were going to take over the planet commercially, and like right up until 1990, that looked like it was going to happen. And what actually stopped them was their own domestic uh, what they call bubble economy collapsing. And as it happens, because Japanese corporations finance themselves largely through debt rather than through equity. Um, even though they, they the, the banks they borrowed of were tied up in what they called the Koretsu system, which meant the bank was sort of part of the same system of share ownership as the, as the companies to which it was lending. Those companies were so saddled with debt that they could no longer invest. So the, the advantage they got over technological advances were crushed by its own financial sector. And the days when everything was Japanese and everything was, uh, uh, was, was uh, you know, you were going to lose out to the Japanese over time had disappeared. And so people might, again, people are probably too, most people are too young to remember Walkmans. But the, I think I'll call the company Sony in that case. So that sounds like a reasonable name to use. Um, Sony Walkman was everybody had a Sony Walkman. Then they had Apple MP3 machines or the the iPod, and so the the Japanese managed to shoot themselves in the foot by financial speculation, which crippled their industrial sector. If only we were all still using Walkmans and getting our tapes chewed up in the playheads and those and having to take the t- pulling the tape out to try and find out where the where it is and then to f- uh, the pencil, the pencil to feed you had it back in again. Handy yeah. so you could wind it. Oh, they were yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. so convenient. So the other issue, of course, is the um, the speculative nature as well, because the, you know, the moment you've got floating uh, currency markets, then you've got all the speculation that goes with that, which can be quite damaging. Which is why I mean, Jim, China allows a floating exchange rate, but it's limiting. The range of movement in a day, they try and sort of, uh, you know, influence the direction so markets can still move up or down, not quite as quickly. But this whole speculative nature obviously just throws more fuel onto the fire, doesn't it? If a, if a, if, if a, you know, if the US dollar is doing well right now, the US dollar does even better because everyone's going, look, buy the dollar. Yeah, and in fact, I've got to put a throw out here one of my good mates, John Harvey. Uh, he, I think he calls himself the cowboy economist. I'm not sure, but uh, John uh, did a very nice uh, presentation ages ago when I was at Kingston University, where he said the conventional thinking about what sets the price of money, uh, the currency in international markets, is all about the supply and demand for its goods. Okay? So you say so you, you need you, know, you you'll get an increasing price for the British pound if people if the British exporting more goods and therefore the British pound will appreciate. But he said he drew he drew that on one side of the whiteboard and then right over to the other side and from the left side to the right side and then said this is where the supply and demand actually is where the actual volume of currency speculation is about 20 times yeah. the size of the actual currency needed to buy goods and services. And that's what's setting the value. And it's got bugger all to do, relatively speaking, uh, with the um, uh, with, with the actual industrial performance of your economy. So what about the idea of, well, let's let's talk very briefly about the Bancor then. So the whole idea of the Bancor uh, uh, was uh, Keynes's idea that we would have, a tra- in effect, a, a, a a global trading currency, so we as a, as the reserve currency. So we'd all keep our own currencies, but we we 
trade in the bank mm. wall, basically. And the idea was they would be issued proportional to each economy size initially. So in the case, of course, America would have got the largest share by far. Um, but then as you, if you ran a trade deficit, you'd run out of Bancorp. And because you're running out of Bancorp, you didn't have to borrow Bancorp from what the International Monetary Fund was supposed to be, which was an international clearinghouse for the currency system, rather than what it's become an enforcer of neoclassical orthodoxy and uh, and austerity. But you know, that, that, the, the fact that you were running out meant you'd have to borrow, and at some point you'd be forced to depreciate your currency uh, to get, and then with that depreciation, along with, with, the, with the time issues that are still involved there, ultimately you would hope, hopefully correct your trade imbalance and you would then be able to sustain the new value you had of your currency relative to the bank or and equally countries which are running a trade surplus. Uh, the same idea applied in reverse for them, they'd start accumulating it and that would then force them to, they'd be forced to appreciate. And Keynes was also going to use uh, interest charges on countries running a surplus as a way of providing money for investment and development in the third world. So they'd get Bancors as a part of the uh, expansionary uh, opposite, uh, operations of the IMF, mm. and that would enable them to buy foreign technology with which they could you know, build up a manufacturing sector. So it was a very, very different uh, idea to the sort of fixed exchange rates we had uh, when you tied things to gold. And the whole idea was to minimize deficits and surpluses through a mechanism rather than relying upon a market, which is after you know, 60 years, I think we can wake Milton up and tell him that idea failed too, mate. Go back to death. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, which is, so, which so, has been quite know, successful at lately. So the uh, yeah, he seems to get reborn all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, the problem with that is, if you're a country that's doing quite well, uh, you know, here's an economist saying, "Oh, look, you know, you do you, what we want to do. If you're doing too well, is we want to tax you so that your country isn't doing quite as well to help some other countries." pick up speed. I mean, that's in effect what he's saying. I mean, it's sort of like a socialist, global socialist approach, isn't it, which the world's not going to adopt? Well, it's too late for it anyway. But I think I think in some ways, what we're seeing with the development of the, um, the you know, the Russian and Chinese ideas um, for their currency block, um, that, the, you know, the BRICS system, that may well be a sort of proto Bancor system because the idea is, would be, I hope, will not to be based on a, on a commodity, which I've seen comments about, but based on a basket of currencies. And the more currencies are in the basket, the less you've got one currency dominating. So you get to the stage where you have a, a proto Bancor coming out of that arrangement. Well, like the old ACU before the euro, we had the ACU, which was the trading currency within mm. within Europe. Uh, why they, which is where it should have stayed. Should, yeah. Where it should have stayed. But then also, I mean, the IMF doesn't allow foreign exchange controls well they do for countries which are transitioning from centrally planned economies to market economies uh but i mean do you think governments should have free reign to determine the value of their currency uh you know as to you know can they should they be able to limit the the, the rate of ex exchange with their with their currency I, I don't i don't think i don't think it should be open uh capacity of other countries to speculate in the currencies of another country, um, because then you get the financial sector booms and busts overwhelming your domestic economy. And I remember very vividly the situation from Malaysia during the Asian financial crisis back in 1997, because as it happens, I got dragged on to, I think it was Philip Adams's show in Australia, discussing it with Peter Harcher, who was the foreign, and still is, I think, the foreign correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. And, in, and that, that was when Malaysia was run by Mahathir, 
who's been denigrated in many, many ways since then. But Mahathir imposed currency controls, basically saying uh, any... Um, I think it was on if you had to repatriate the ringgit if you had it overseas, uh, if you've been you know, using ringgit to buy foreign currencies or whatever else, you were forced to repatriate. So he brought capital controls in, and he did not allow the ringgit to be um, you know, just set by international price systems. So he had currency controls. And Peter Harcher in the interview with me um, said, uh, this will be a test. And I said, well, let's just see what happens, you know. Uh, which country will come out of the Asian currency best? Well, it be the ones that enable this continuing speculation and movement of money in and out of their currencies, like, for example, Thailand? Uh, or will it be the Malaysia, which is blocking it and forcing people to repatriate their money? Malaysia came through that far better than the rest of that. And, of course, that was never acknowledged uh, by anybody else on, on the other side of that discussion. But, yeah, the, the capital controls worked because it's ultimately a flighty capital, which ends up, you know, overvaluing your commercial real estate assets, which is what happened to Thailand dramatically in 1997. Uh, and but then, you know, wiping out the value of your manufacturing sector at the same size because your currency is overvalued. And then when the crisis occurs, bang, you plunge down. Um, so we saw an incredible chaos coming out of that. And the worst of all being for Indonesia, which I, I think it had about a, a factor of 30 depreciation in its currency, like it fell by, you know, you talk about a, a 130% effect, it's had a 3,000% effect on Indonesia. Malaysia sailed through all that. So by stopping the financial sector and being able to speculate in its domestic currency, Malaysia came through that more successfully than any other country mm. in Asia. And I think that's what we should be saying, to get the, get the bloody financial markets out of here. Well, do you know, I remember when I was a kid, and this isn't exactly the same because this is a limit on, on foreign currency movement rather than capital controls as such. But uh, it was I mean, 1966, I was very young at the time, but it stuck around for a while that you could only take a certain amount of money. If you went on holiday, British holiday, Makers. They could only take fifty pounds uh, out of the country. Fifty pounds is worth a bit more in those days, because otherwise you'd have a, a you know pretty crap holiday, wouldn't you? Uh, but that's the maximum amount that you could take out of the country to to to, to go overseas. I think Jeffrey Howe was the one who got rid of that uh, during uh, Margaret Thatcher's era. I think, yeah. I mean, the, the British is an interesting example because that's what led to George Soros's wealth. Because when you had a fixed exchange rate, they're fixed at the behest of a national government. And national governments had a, an incredible resistance to devaluing their currency. But if you were having a trade deficit, then you were being pushed in that direction by the whole fixed system. And uh, and what um, Soros did was say, well, the British are going to be forced to devalue at some point. Uh, and with the fact that he could take leave in money, could you know, borrow money to speculate in the British pound that is speculating is going to fall, um, that actually caused the fall. And that's where Soros's money came from. But one thing people, yeah, but that's the other fascinating thing is that, and this is uh, back in 71 to 73, I think it was, America, when it, when it, when you finally broke with the gold standard, so the, the whole idea of being able to convert those dollars uh, at Fort Knox was removed, um, the American corporations themselves, multinational corporations, uh, were investigated by the United States Congress to say, did their behaviour have any impact on precipitating the, the the break with the gold standard? And the answer came back with some extremely good research, yes, because what they did was they changed their length of terms. They didn't actually speculate, but they said, oh, look, if you owe us money in, um, um, you know, because we're expecting the American dollar to 
to devalue. I'm, I'm, it's, it's so long back, I've got to remember the direction. But say expected it to fall. You want to be paying immediately. But if you uh, in other currency expected to rise, uh, you wanted to hang on to that money as long as possible. So you extended the terms and simply changing the terms of, you know, from 14 days to 28 or from you know, 50 to 15 days, they, the volume that had actually precipitated the move by the Americans to, to break, break the gold standard. So the capacity, even of multinationals, not strictly the financial sector, but companies, operations in multiple countries, to be able to manipulate their bank balances in those countries, that it was actually uh, a precipitating factor in the breaking of the gold standard. Yeah. And there's two dimensions to this, aren't there? There's the sort of the longer game, and then there's the day-to-day fluctuations, which are which are driven by speculators. So, um, you know, the, 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 there's, there's the difference between exchange controls, like those, you know, I was talking about with British holidaymakers and capital controls, which is what we've been talking about, where you control the flow of capital, and you do that through taxation or, you know, to try and protect industries, however you're doing it. But that's going to have an impact on the exchange rate long term, isn't it? Because you'd assume that that protectionism is going to encourage more of a net flow into the economy because you're going to get investment into the economy and you're going to sell stuff overseas and buy less in. So you're going to, you know, it's going to, the reason you're doing it is obviously to try and improve your your balance of trade. Um, but that isn't going to control day-to-day fluctuations. Uh, that is going to be down to the speculators. But also, I mean, if that is a successful strategy, wouldn't everybody be doing that? That's, and, and, and who wins? And, and that's the reason, one of the reasons Keynes put the bank hall forward, because he said if you live at this, this level, everybody's going to be trying to get a game on somebody else. Uh, we The only way to eliminate that is to have a centralised uh, system that uh, that eliminates the problem at the source rather than letting countries, you know, pursue bigger their neighbour type policies. Yeah, well, and it would become just not a, well, not as innovative, so we're going to have to be more protectionist. Uh, and then it's a race to the bottom in terms of that, isn't it? I mean, protectionism, I can see the argument in favour of it, but if everybody is just becoming more and more protectionist, uh, then we just end up, the world just ends up with however many countries all with their own domestic economies, uh, which you might say is not a, necessarily a bad thing. But in this uh, th- this fluctuation in currencies, I mean, is is this why Bitcoin has become so popular? Because here's a, if you want to speculate in currencies, here's a currency that's not driven by government policy or geopolitical events or the terms of trade for any particular uh, country or currency. It is just pure in that sense, isn't it? Pure Ponzi, perhaps. But uh, it is not hindered by anything else. So presumably that is why currency people have gone and said, yeah, Bitcoin's the right thing for us. Well, I mean, that's the, the whole libertarian appeal of, of, of the of, of the. the the Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin brings in another issue about what is the nature of money, uh, because when you have the way money is defined, it's you know a means of exchange, a, a system of accounts, and a store of value. Now, what Bitcoin emphasises is the store of value side of money, and that actually that actually affects the uh, exchange side of money because if you think it's going to continue appreciating, you don't want to spend it. Uh, I'm, I would love to. I mean, I I should have bought. I, I had the option. Max and Max uh, Kaiser and Stacey Herbert 
uh, told me I should buy a Bitcoin when I think it was 10 quid a Bitcoin and I could have bought a hundred of them, no problem. Uh, and in order to lose money, of course, there would be God knows how much now because of the appreciating going on. But what it means is people don't spend. And I would love to meet up with somebody who bought a hamburger or bought a pizza for a hundred Bitcoin sometime in the early days and see what their limit is because mine is not taking advantage of an opportunity. Theirs was giving away something they should have hung on to. So it actually becomes an ant an anti-exchange system. Yeah, yeah, it's just another financial instrument, isn't it, ultimately, in the end of the day. Uh, and uh, mm. people touting it are just real estate agents just selling Bitcoin rather than houses. It's exactly the same, isn't it, really? Um, mm. Virt virtual landscapes, So, yeah. um, okay, we're almost at the end here, really. I feel like we've, we've covered some of the problems without the solutions, except for the fact that should governments... I mean, if we're not going to go down the, the, you know, the whole road uh, of uh, going for the, uh, the Bancor... Should governments be able to take control themselves as to, you know, should they be able to impose capital control? Should there be that element of protectionism? Or is the IMF right that, no, it should be free-flowing, uh, otherwise it doesn't work? I'm you know, on the okay. side of the countries on that particular front. And they're like, yes, okay, you're going to get corruption out of it. But the IMF is dominated by neoclassical economists and anything they touch turns to lead, including gold. Um, that they're, they're sort of the world's reverse alchemists. Uh, get them out of the way. So I'd, I'd, uh, if I've got a choice between you know, corrupt national governments and a bloody IMF uh, with its uh, uh, focus on austerity, I'll go for national governments anytime because at least they have got some cons relative concern for the fate of their own people. Uh, but presumably, you could put some sort of some sort of constraints on it. You can go so far, but not all the way. You know, th there could be some sort of ag agreement as to uh, that th the world could get together and say, well, okay, th you can have capital controls, but only to a certain extent, perhaps. Well, I'd rather, um, I'd rather have focus on reducing the size of the financial sector because, as Keynes said so well so many decades ago now, when the mm. uh, in development of your economy is the byproduct of the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be ill done. And there's certainly been an ill done job over the last 70 years. So maybe China has got the right idea then in terms of, well, saying, well, okay, let's control just the variation within our currency on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, let's, let's set a rate by how far it can move. Well, that, that's, again, uh, most countries have done that because the the you know, disturbing effects of instability of the currency you know, as we started this this uh, this podcast with. So, yeah, uh, the, the, the idea of you know, a free-floating exchange rate uh, had such negative consequences that most countries have tried to limit how far those can move. Right, which, of, co of course, you know, a lot are doing through the actions of central banks, buying and selling their own currencies and issuing of bonds and so forth, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Which I think, I guess, is, is fair enough. But, uh, yeah, the question is, should we have constraints on that as well uh, so that it is more of a level playing field? Anyway, it's an interesting discussion. We'll leave it there for now. Good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you next okay. week. Okay, bye. And there he was, gone. By the way, if you're listening to this with the ads and you don't want to listen to it with the ads and you'd like to get a few days earlier, then do become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon uh, and you'll get this access to this each Saturday rather than uh, every Wednesday, ad-free. Just mentioning that in case you weren't aware, but otherwise we'll see however you're listening to this. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economic Podcast.
After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.